That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of This Show Is All About You. Really excited to have you joining me for the next hour as uh, we talk about some things that maybe we talk about quite a bit, uh, but maybe in a different way, kind of getting under uh, the common narratives and seeing what we can connect over, whether it's over the news, over the story of the week, over what's happening with me, all of which I update you on every week on this show. Whatever it might be, uh, I hope that you find something in it worthwhile to reflect on. So welcome to all of you. And remember, you can, if you're listening to this live on 880 Kixie, I really appreciate you doing so. And remember, if you miss any part of this episode, you have several different options. You can also catch this show at 6 a.m. every Wednesday, a replay on KKNW 1150 here in Seattle. So on your way into work, you can listen to it. You can also listen to it overnight, uh, 1 a.m. Pacific time, Friday into Saturday on KKNW as well. And you can also get this show as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. And I would be happy to connect with you, hear about the show, hear your thoughts on it, uh, suggestions for future shows, you name it. Let's connect. A quick thank you here right at the front end, like I always like to do, to this show's longtime sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds. They do so, though, in a very holistic way that helps empower kids to better connect with themselves, to better advocate for themselves, and to connect better with their families and their larger communities for the benefit of us all. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, please check out their website at airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. You'll also hear more about them during the upcoming commercial breaks. <clears throat> so that and a little bit of a scratchy voice this morning, not sure where that's coming from, Nevertheless, um, I'm really excited for today's uh, for today's show. I am every single week. Uh, there's going to be a little bit of heavier, sadder content on some of this stuff today, but I think it will be worthwhile because there's also some really, really beautiful stuff I want to talk about in today's story uh, for the day. However, we start, as we always do, by taking a look back at a couple of important points in the last week's news in a segment I call, What in the World is Going On? And Kyiv is accused is accusing Russia of firebombing the besieged city of Bakhmut using phosphorus munitions. In drone video released by Ukraine, Bakhmut can be seen ablaze as what appears to be phosphorus rains down. And according to a Human Rights Watch report, phosphorus can burn through metal. Its use is considered a war crime when deployed against civilians. It's an absolutely haunting <clears throat> visual. And you can find the video of the firebombing going on at Bakhmut anywhere on the Internet right now. And the reason why it's haunting is if, like me, you have seen a lot of World War II documentaries over the past you know, decades, you've seen uh, video footage, black and white video footage of the firebombing of cities like Hamburg in Germany, Dresden in Germany, as well as Tokyo and a number of other cities in Japan. And you can tell what it looks like. You have floating pieces of fire. 
floating down gently and then incinerating what's below it. To see that in the 21st century in color happening again on a, a, in a city that whatever civilians are left, um, there can't be many anymore after this. It's absolutely horrifying. And it is a war crime under international law. And it underscores the degree to which Russian desperation continues to grow. Bakhmut has been a focus of their winter and into the spring offensive, and it has literally gone nowhere. Russian soldiers and Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian soldiers have been dying over literally fighting over yards um, in Bakhmut and elsewhere. As all of this happens and civilian casualties go up, Russian casualties mount, Ukrainian uh, military casualties mount, the Ukrainian military is getting ready for its spring offensive. I keep coming on here every week talking about the offensive is coming, the offensive is coming. At some point, it will. Uh, however, the fact that firebombing is happening now is a really sobering sign for where this continues to head. And unfortunately, uh, Russia is either going to have to be exhausted or be outright defeated on the battlefield for this to end. And one can only hope some combination of the two happens sooner rather than later. But make no mistake, Russia has uh, long ago thrown off any, any care about the degree to which they violate international law when it comes to Ukraine. All right, and the second story of the day, unfortunately, something that is becoming increasingly a sad occurrence in this country and has been for a really long time, but it's a quote from somebody who saw something really horrific happen in Allen, Texas, a few days ago. This was carnage like you see in a war zone. Spainauer says he hopes to forget what he saw, but he knows he probably won't. He'll seek counseling today. His son will too. Seeing my son come out with his hands up was a relief, but having him walk past bodies that I had to cover with sheets was not something any parent should have to face. Spainauer, who briefly served as a police officer, says he was heartbroken yesterday, furious today. So I understand mental health. Matt, mental health didn't fire that gun. It's time for lawmakers to act, he says, because he shouldn't have had to. That, of course, uh, one of the first individuals to respond to the shooting at an outlet mall in Allen, Texas, um, over the weekend. Um, eight people killed, a number of people wounded. The, the gunman himself also killed by a police officer. And what's so interesting, Stephen Spainauer's name is becoming more and more well-known. He's actually gone viral as of this morning because he was saying all of that, saying that as identifying himself as a gun lover, but somebody who now believes this is going to continue to happen. That quote, mental health didn't kill these people, guns did, has gone viral. And there comes a point, and it should have happened, frankly, a long time ago, uh, where more would be done on this. And the fact that it is happening in places like Texas that are openly embracing putting more guns on the street, making it easier for more people to get them, should be a wake-up call on some level. And it's not. I remember very painfully when the Sandy Hook uh, shooting happened, 20-some-odd first graders gunned down by somebody. I thought, this is as low as we can go. This is as bad as it can get. This has to be the moment where things change. And sadly, as we all know, they did not. And this hit me heavier over the weekend, not because suddenly I reached my tolerance. My tolerance for this expired a long time ago. 
But what ended up happening was I was watching, completely unrelated to this, I started watching an HBO series on John Adams. It was done a number of years ago. Uh, Paul Giamatti plays John Adams, based on the biography by David McCollum. And there's a scene in that show that it didn't happen in real history. But nevertheless, it captured Adams and it captured the sentiment uh, that that I started reflecting about with the shooting very well. There's a scene where um, a man is being tarred and feathered for trying to bring tea into Boston Harbor. It's right before the, the Boston Tea Party in 1774. And this crowd, of which John Adams is there and his cousin, Samuel Adams, is also there, turns on this official and decides to tar and feather him, which is a very painful process. Hot tar poured on him and then feathered. And Sam Adams is all for it. As a member of the Sons of Liberty, he's all for it. But John Adams acted with horror in this, which he did consider tar and feathering to be a horrible thing. And he yells at his cousin, quote, do you approve of brutal and illegal acts to enforce a political principle? Do you approve of brutal and illegal acts to enforce a political principle? And for whatever reason, that quote rang out to me when thinking about where we happen to be with guns. The majority of people in this country, whether they are gun owners or not, support some sort of control measures to keep them limited, particularly on high capacity weapons like AR-15 style rifles, which were the ones which was the one that was used in this particular shooting and so many others. And the idea of for some people that the idea of the Second Amendment, as they interpret it, as something that they are okay with a series of brutal and illegal acts committing murder because they want to protect the legality of those guns, those weapons that commit that murder, seemingly is completely off kilter away from a principled stand. If a political principle of any kind has to be defended, it seems to me, by brutal and illegal acts, just accepting them as such, then perhaps our compass point on that particular issue is a little off. And by a little, I mean a lot. It seems to me that something bigger than a principle is at stake here. And it's literally the lives of people that you and I know or ourselves. These people being gunned down, no one's asking if they're Republican or Democrat. No one's asking what they believe in religiously or otherwise. No one's asking them anything. They are just being gunned down because they happen to be in front of the person with the gun. What political principle is there that is worth defending on that? If that defending is the cost of individual lives, that runs counter to, you know, this kind of important document, the Declaration of Independence, where everybody has the right, inalienable right, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What happened in places like Allen and all these other places, sadly, is all those three things are being snuffed out. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All in the name, honestly, of a handful of people working against the general will of the people to uphold their perception of some larger political principle as if that is sacrosanct over innocent human life. And I know I'm stretching a little far on this, but you know what? I've had enough. And I think a lot of other people have as well. Okay. So with that in mind, <laughs> I'm laughing because I kind of have to lighten up on myself a little bit here at the content. Now, with that in mind, I have a story for today that is going to take us back into history. And it does tie into this, even though it has nothing to do with guns. 
and has nothing to do with shootings, has nothing to do with Ukraine or with Russia. Um, it's a story from history, much as I did last week in talking about Abraham Lincoln um, and Ann Rutledge. However, like last week, I'm going to tell you this story without revealing too many of the pertinent details at the front end. Okay. And hopefully you will understand why I'm going to do that as the story goes on. Okay. So for this, we're going to stay here in the United States. Okay? And let's go back to 1937 in New York City. 1937 in New York City, the city was, of course, in the middle of the Great Depression, along with the rest of the uh, rest of the country and the rest of the world. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president, was putting forward all the reforms of the New Deal in an effort to get the United States out of the Depression. And beginning in 1937, what had been the drumbeats towards war in Asia, as well as in Europe, were getting closer. Late in the year, Japan would invade into Japan, uh, into China. And a few years after that, of course, Hitler would invade Poland and World War II would begin in earnest. So this was all building up to that. But our focus is on a young man who in 1937 was 36 years old. His name is Gavin. That is his real name. And Gavin was a bit itinerant. He had spent time earlier in his life um, in Ireland as part of the um, Irish Republican movement against British rule. And over there had adopted the very Irish name of Gavin for himself. And that's what he went by for the rest of his life. He was itinerant in the sense that uh, he was from a, uh, a pretty well-known family in New York, well-known in New York circles. But he kind of went in a different direction. He became an astrologer, first and foremost, and moved around quite a bit. Later in life, he actually lost so much of his own part of his family inheritance that he ended up selling newspapers on the street in San Francisco. But when, we've, when we're meeting him here in 1937, Gavin uh, met up with his father one day. And his father brought him something rather strange, brought him about a thousand pieces of paper. And these pieces of paper were what had survived from Gavin's grandfather's personal papers. So his father was giving him his grandfather's, what was left of his personal papers. Now, Gavin had never met his grandfather. Gavin's grandfather had died of kidney disease in 1886 in New York City. Gavin was born in 1901. So this was something that was, it was disconnected for him in terms of knowing his grandfather, but his grandfather had been a man of some prominence. But it was a bit of a mystery to Gavin what to do with all this because, as was known in his family, shortly before his grandfather's death in 1886, he'd ordered the majority of his personal papers burned. So the fact that there were some papers left, enough, about a thousand pieces, to, for Gavin to take charge of, he didn't really know what to do with them. And so he began to look through them and he found something rather interesting in them. Among a lot of official correspondence and notes here and there, parts of what his grandfather's business had been about. Don't worry, I'll tell you about that in a little bit. Gavin found 23 handwritten letters from the same person to his grandfather. And it was from a woman named Julia. And as far as Gavin had known, he asked in his family, do, do we have anybody in our family, a Julia, a friend, um, someone who grandfather could have known? His grandfather had been married, but his, his wife, Gavin's grandmother, had died in 1880. 
And his grandfather had never remarried, as far as anyone knew. He hadn't taken on any new uh, paramour, if you will, um, after his wife had died. So he asked around the family, nobody knew. So after looking through a number of different official records, Gavin decided to go to the newspapers. And he put an ad in several New York newspapers, New York Tribune in particular, looking for information for this woman named Julia, including her last name. And I'll tell you that one in a little bit too. And it's a long story short, over the next year, as this information went out about Julia, this woman's nephew, a man named Paul, reached out to Gavin and said, that Julia was my aunt. And as it turned out, based on what Gavin had been looking at in these letters, based on what had survived of his grandfather's papers, and based on what he knew of his grandfather's career, it was clear that these letters from this Julia had had a profound direct effect on his grandfather. And this turned out to be rather important on a number of levels. What was also important was that he learned that Julia, just a few years previously, in 1933, had died in an insane asylum not far from where Gavin was standing. And she'd been in that asylum for over 40 years by the time she had died. And so Gavin set out to answer the mystery of who this woman was and the effect that she had had on her grandfather. Now, when we come back from our first break here, I will tell you more about Julia and more about Gavin's grandfather, and you'll see where I'm going with this today on this episode of this show is all about you. Be right back. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You in the middle of this week's story, which is about the connection between a woman named Julia and the grandfather of a man named Gavin, who in 1937 was given his grandfather's personal papers. And in it, he found 23 handwritten letters from this woman, Julia, to his grandfather, which appeared to have quite a profound effect on him. And this is what Gavin found out after connecting with uh, this Julia's nephew, a young man named Paul. Uh, Julia's full name was Julia Sand. And Julia Sand was born in New York in 1848. And so by the time she died, 
in that asylum in 1933. She was going on 85 years old. But she was born in 1848, the youngest daughter, <clears throat> the youngest child of a family of nine. And from a very young age, Julia had been very interested in a lot of things that women were not supposed to be interested in. Reading, writing, politics. And of course, she was born right into the very beginnings of the women's suffrage movement, which was really just beginning to build steam in the middle of the 19th century. And as Julia grew older, she was beset by a number of various health problems. Now, she, she considered herself an invalid, somebody who could not go outdoors very often. She said she suffered from deafness, partial blindness, uh, he terrible headaches, um, body fatigue, you name it, difficulty walking. And so because of that, growing up with that, she became very immersed in books, literature, the news, current affairs, in particular, the conduct of the government. And she had a very searing experience in 1862 when she was just 14 years old. Julia's brother, a Union soldier, was killed at the Battle of Antietam, a major uh, turning point in the Civil War. And so she knew the very cost of the divisions in the United States that led to the Civil War. And of course, after the Civil War was over and she entered her late teens and into her early 20s, the course of the new, newly reunified country mattered a lot to her. And her other siblings, also many of them living in New York, in the aftermath of the Civil War, as Reconstruction was going on in the South, and the country brought itself back together, expanded across the continent with the Transcontinental Railroad, and all the issues that came with it. Right? Massive immigration, particularly from China, creating a lot of tension there, and the growth of giant companies, monopolies like <laughs> railroads in steel, that type of thing. The gaps between the haves and the have-nots in the United States continued to grow. And by the time the 1870s rolled about, on the other end of the end of Reconstruction in 1877, the country ended what is now known in retrospect as the Gilded Age, a period in which there was a great deal amount of wealth and the appearance of wealth in a number of different sectors of the United States, but that was really kind of gilding over a lot of rot and a lot of difficulty. A number of people in poverty, not a whole lot of rules protecting children in labor, or uh, health codes, or safety codes in industries, you name it. It was a major period of change. And it was also a major period in politics of corruption. As more and more money existed to buy off politicians at the national, at the state, and at the local levels, that tended to happen a lot more. And Julia Sand was very interested in the goings-on of this, in particularly in civic affairs, in New York, where she lived. She lived on 74th Street <laughs> in New York. And by the time she was an adult, she was living with several sisters, her mother, and a few nieces and nephews in a very nondescript apartment. Her brothers, meanwhile, had become more and more actively involved in local New York politics. They were Republicans, which had been the party that had been the party of Lincoln and a number of successive presidents, Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford B. Hayes, and a few others. And they were doing, working very hard, Republicans were, to hold on to the White House as often as possible. And in the 1870s, as all of these transitions were going on, Julia's brothers came into contact more 
with one faction of the Republican Party known as the stalwarts. And the stalwarts were the hardline Republicans who really wanted to hold on to particular political systems and the system of political patronage in which rather than hiring people to work in government offices who were qualified for that, it was the people that you knew. It was your friends. It was your cronies. It was the people that maybe you owed money to. This was a way for the parties to continue to build its coffers and for people who were ambitious to move up in politics. And her brothers got to know a lot of these people, including, as it turned out, Gavin's grandfather, who started out working for a man named Senator Conklin, who was known throughout the world as one of the greasiest palms, if you will, in American politics, particularly in New York, meaning he handed out a lot of personal favors and expected a lot of personal favors. This was one period of sort of the boss, political bosses ruling cities, ruling New York and other places like that. And Conkling was that kind of guy. And Gavin's grandfather, who had been born in 1829, had studied law in New York, had gotten a BA at Union College, and had served in the Civil War as a quartermaster general for the New York militia during the Civil War, he'd steeped himself in New York politics. And Gavin's grandfather got the attention of people like Senator Conkling and others throughout the 18, on the aftermath of the Civil War, throughout the 1870s. By the time we get to 1880, the same year that Gavin's grand, grandmother died, Julia Sands was very connected in with Republican politics and had taken a notice of Gavin's grandfather. In part, that was because the rest of the country had learned about Gavin's grandfather. Because in 1880, for the presidential election, Gavin's grandfather, Chester A. Arthur, had been put forward to become vice president of the United States and was indeed elected vice president of the United States, with the president being James Garfield, another Republican who was known as a reformer from the reformer wing of the Republican Party. And so Chester A. Arthur was Gavin's grandfather. Now, both Garfield and Arthur took their oaths of office in March of 1881. And just a few months later, James Garfield, who had promised to reform this patronage system that often seemed so corrupt and prevented real social change from happening in the country, James Garfield promised to do that, and an assassin shot him. And it took 11 weeks for Garfield to die which made Chester A. Arthur, Gavin's grandfather, the 21st president of the United States. And he wasn't elected into the position. Now, Julia Sands, upon Arthur's accession to the presidency, began to write him the first of these 23 letters. And I'm going to quote some of them because some of them are pretty powerful. She was a big fan of Arthur and wanted to see him make the changes that Garfield had promised to make. And she took it upon herself as somebody who was educated. She had even published an, a book and several articles under a pseudonym as a man, as was common in the 19th century. She took it upon herself to hold 
Chester A. Arthur's feet to the fire when it came to the promises of what his predecessor had put forward and what she thought he was capable of doing, being better than a conkling man who would just hand out patronage and hand out favors and allow for corruption. In her first letter, she wrote to him, quote, What president ever entered office under circumstances so sad? The day he, meaning Garfield, was shot, the thought rose in a thousand minds that you might be the instigator of the foul act. Is not that a humiliation which cuts deeper than any bullet can pierce? Your best friends have said, Arthur must resign. He cannot accept office with such a suspicion resting on him. But now your kindest opponents say, she said, Arthur will try to do right. Adding gloomily that he won't succeed, though, making a man president cannot change him, end quote. Chester A. Arthur would be president until 1884. About three years. He would not run for re-election. His health would get the best of him. And as I mentioned, he died in 1886, not long after he left the White House. And so it could very well have been he could have just played out the string. Republicans controlled the government. He could allow the patronage system to go forward. But as it turns out, Julius Sands' letters to him began to really affect him. In particular, two things seemed to motivate her letters the most, pushing him to making different decisions than most people expected. One was on the Chinese Exclusion Act, an act that was meant to ban Chinese immigration into the United States, which was already happening in California, but the attempt was to push it nationally. Julia Sands wrote that this was a cruel law, that it was against all the founding principles of the Declaration of Independence, that it was unconstitutional, that it was unwise for the economy of the country. But most importantly, it was an opportunity to her, at least in her letters to Chester Arthur, it was an opportunity for him to rise above the expectations that he in part had set for himself with his patronage past and that others had set for him as a Republican stalwart. He was not seen as a reformer. Historians have since believed that Julia's letters directly helped Chester A. Arthur have, I guess you could call it an attack of conscience or the growth of one, and he vetoed the first act before signing on to a second less punitive one, which is remarkable seeing as the Chinese Exclusion Act was pretty punitive. Julius Sands, however, did not let him get away with that unscathed. And she absolutely ripped him apart for his decision on the Chinese Exclusion Act and said he was lesser a human being for that. And yet she also continued to encourage him to do better, to pay closer attention to the plight of everyday Americans rather than simply those in his own political party to look beyond political expedience, even political principles at the larger principles that were behind the constitution and the declaration of independence. This is what she said after he finally signed on to the Chinese exclusion act quote, a Congress of ignorant schoolboys could not devise more idiotic legislation. It is not only behind the age, but behind several ages. 
not only opposed to the spirit of American institutions, but opposed to the spirit of civilization all the world over. It is mean and cowardly. More than that, it is a step back into barbarism. She wrote that to him in, 19, in 1882. Meanwhile, Julia was keeping this correspondence with Arthur's secret. Helped by the fact that there is no evidence that Chester Arthur ever wrote her back. But nevertheless, she continued to write to him. The other big piece of legislation that she was on him about was something that would be called the Pendleton Act. And eventually, in January of 1883, in a shock to everyone, Chester A. Arthur would push through Congress the Pendleton Act, and it came to be known as the Pendleton Sur Civil Service Reform Act. And this essentially threw out the entire patronage system inside the American government and replaced it with the system we have now, a comprehensive, intensive civil service exam where people have to pass that in order to enter it, enter the civil service, and people cannot be punished for their political affiliations or moved out of their job for political affiliations or political differences with whatever administration happens to be in power. It has become a bedrock of how our government operates, that regardless of who is in the White House, of which party and which personality, a civil service existed on merit is what Chester A. Arthur put forward. And many of the letters that Julius Sands sent to him pushed him to go in this direction. And historians of Arthur have concluded since then that Julius Sands' letters on this score may have indeed proved pivotal in convincing Chester A. Arthur to go against the grain of the own faction of his own party, against the pressures of outside interests, particularly those big monopolies in steel and railroads, and to do the right thing on the basis of a bigger, deeper, broader, more universal principle of providing for more people in the country while reducing corruption among those who governed them. And it's worth noting the push by former President Trump and others to change the civil service has to do with getting, getting rid of the civil service exam. That's one reason why it should never happen, because it would open the door to a new patronage system yet again and cre help create, effectively, what could, we could call a second Gilded Age. This shocked everyone. Chester A. Arthur was not expected to be someone who would do something like this. And while he never wrote to Julius Sands, we do know for a fact that what she believed mattered. And we know it from one incident, and that's it. And I'll tell you about that incident when we come back from our second break here on this show is all about you. So stick around to hear the end of the story and why I'm telling it to you today. Come on back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. 
Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Don't ask me to talk. Don't Ask Me to Talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacey Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder, Don't Ask Me to Talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you finishing up today's story about uh, the connection between Julia Sands, uh, a woman uh, in New York City who was writing a series of letters to then President Chester A. Arthur. And this is in the early 1880s, essentially hitting his conscience hard on what were the right things for him to do politically. And the Pendleton Civil Service Act I talked about at length was the big one. But she genuinely seemed to, Julia did, genuinely seemed to believe in Chester A. Arthur and said so, that she expected more from him, saw more in him than what others seemed to see in him and perhaps what he saw in himself. And it seemed to have an effect in the fact that the, the Pendleton Act passing was a shock and his support of it was something that people did not anticipate. And it turned out to be one of the most important internal civil government acts perhaps in American history, certainly in the post-Civil War history of the United States. Julia also unabashedly invited Chester A. Arthur to visit her if he was ever in New York and hinted in her letters at times where she would be most available. And that one incident I talked about that shows that we know that Julia Sand had a deep impact on Chester A. Arthur happened because he did come visit her. On August 20th, 1882, before the Pendleton Act had been passed, Chester A. Arthur, seemingly without the press finding out and nobody seeing, visited Julia at her home on 74th Street in New York City. Now, she lived with a lot of people, <laughs> sisters, nieces, and nephews. And so she wrote in subsequent letters that it had not been the way she had envisioned it, his visit, because they had not had a chance to really dig into the issues that she most cared about. She had wanted to talk politics with him and no doubt let him know exactly what she thought about him and where he was going and what he was doing. There had been a lot of people around. And so she wrote about it later being feeling awkward and divided. And she was a bit tongue tied and, and limiting herself because of, of people who were there. But he did come to visit her. He did not really say much to anybody afterwards, but she did talk about some of the comments he made. And it confirmed that she'd read his letter. She wrote back to him saying, quote, you said you would like some time to tell me the real truth on several points. 
in regard to which I had fake impressions because she'd been relying upon newspapers in the end. So we know that he had wanted, in part, to set her straight on a few things about maybe about him, maybe about his policies, maybe about, we don't know, really. But despite that short visit, which lasted in the evening for a couple of hours, there's nothing else that we know, but the letters continue to go unanswered. She certainly continued to express her disappointment in him when she felt it was warranted. And towards the end of his presidency, she wanted him to visit her again, but he did not. And he had, she pointed out to him that she was feeling more and more ill as time went by, and she was hoping that he would come by and talk to, talk to her and have more time, either by the end of his presidency or shortly thereafter, because he had decided not to run again. Well, in the end, Chester A. Arthur stepped away, and as I said, he died in 1886. And before he died, as I mentioned at the top of the story, he ordered a lot of his personal papers to be burned. What is amazing, though, is that these 23 letters were not burned with it. And we don't know if that was on purpose, that he wanted them separate so that people would know the effect that Julia Sand, this, this woman in New York, with no real connection to him whatsoever, had had on his presidency, or if it was just luck of the draw. Whatever the case, by the time these papers made their way decades later into the hands of Gavin Arthur, whose full name was Chester A. Arthur III, and he'd taken on the name Gavin on his own. By the time these papers got to him, Julia Sands was in a very, very different place. In fact, she'd already passed away. But the same year that Chester A. Arthur died, Julia Sands had a terrible tragedy of her own. Most people believe that what ended up putting her into an asylum was the emotional crash she had after a paramour of her own had drowned right in front of her. And it seems to have been the thing that finally broke the poor woman. And she was put into an institution by her family. That was in 1886. She died in 1933, which means she spent 47 years institutionalized without anybody knowing the direct effect she had had, the profound effect she had had, not just on the most prominent man in the United States for four years, Chester A. Arthur, but the effect that her words had had on him stepping into a better version of himself to push forward a reform act that most people thought, A, would never pass, and B, if it did, would have no clear consequence for the country. By the time the 1930s had rolled around, it was a really good thing that the civil service was structured the way it was, particularly in the midst of the Depression. Civil servants with long careers were a part of the process of putting forward the New Deal. People who were excited about joining the New Deal had to pass a civil service exam to get into the government. It's how the government brought in the best and brightest from society. Instead of the people who were most well-connected, who had the most money, who were willing to do the most underhanded things in order to get jobs in the government. I cannot imagine what the Depression would have been like 
if the American Civil Service was still full of grifters and corrupt yes-men. And you can make the argument that Julia Sands, from her small apartment in New York, with all of the things that she suffered with and worked against, had made the moral case so clear to Chester A. Arthur that it convicted him enough to take the steps to pass that act. That is an incredible story of what one can do with one's pen. Unlike anybody else who had probably appeared in Chester A. Arthur's political life, Julia Sands was not looking for anything from him except maybe the occasional visit. She was not asking for a job, for a handout, for patronage for her brothers, more money. She went after him on the basis of her moral compass alone. And instead of berating him for being an idiot (laughs) or anything like that, she continually went to what she saw as the best potential in him. What President Abraham Lincoln might have called the better angels in this case of Chester A. Arthur. That's what she went after. And it made a difference. And nobody knew about it until the 1930s. The Library of Congress and the National Archives had wanted material from Chester A. Arthur's presidency, but he had burned most of it. So the fact that suddenly Gavin in 1933, 37, excuse me, had all of these papers suddenly was of great interest to the Library of Congress. And here are these 23 letters from this heretofore unknown woman whose letters had happened to survive. And when you pieced it together with everything else that could be pieced together about the man, seemed to have had a very profound effect on how he viewed his presidency himself and his legacy, enough to buck years of his own experience and his own tradition. Julia Sands didn't become known to the rest of the world till after she'd already died, after 47 years in an asylum. To me, it illustrates one of the most amazing things and one of the cautionary tales about understanding what we know about history. All the things we know in history, as important as they are, there might be a million things that have gone on behind the scenes that have been just as important, but nobody knows about them. Which means for us today, it seems to me, that can be true of any of us. Going back to the top of the show with my words about what happened in Allen, Texas. This seems to fit, doesn't it? Perhaps not just that we lobby our politicians, but we see in them the better versions of themselves that so many people don't point out to them. Instead, no matter what direction we come from, we condemn, we seem to. If they're on the opposite side of us, they're an idiot. They're irredeemable. They're against us. They're an enemy. Julia Sand didn't go that direction. She continually pushed Chester A. Arthur to step courageously into a better version of himself. Perhaps there's something in there for all of us in the potential that we 
can have in how we talk to the people who make decisions on our behalf. But in order to do that, I truly believe Julia Sands had to be able to see that in herself first. And she clearly did. She did not make excuses around her physical health, her ailments, her maladies, her life circumstances to write to him and write for the public, for Write for Magazine. She did. She wrote articles for Harper's Weekly and other publications as a pseudonym. She made no excuses. She put forward her best version of herself. So she had to see that first and push for that in herself first to have any legitimacy in asking somebody else, never mind the President of the United States, to do the same thing. That's, this is a story of not only potential, but potential realized even when nobody was looking. To me, that is the powerful thing about this story. She did the right thing, not knowing that at some point, and probably not caring, that at some point that this would be known in history. She didn't know that. She was a person of her time, living in her own time, caring about the things of her own time, but focused on principles bigger and more important than the day-in, day-out realities of politics. She championed the human condition first. And in there, I think there's a lesson for all of us. When we say to ourselves, what can I do? I'm just one person. Well, in this case, Julia Sands changed the mind of the President of the United States. And the thing that he did has had a profound positive effect on the country ever since in an unexpected way. She wasn't heroic in any way that we kind of normally identify. She didn't have an amazingly blessed life, exactly the opposite. It wasn't a renowned life until after she was gone. But would any of us argue, knowing what we know now, that it wasn't a good life? That she didn't realize some element of potential that she never realized or knew she may have reached? Chester A. Arthur never, as far as we know, came and told her, you changed my life. But he didn't have to. Or if he, if he did, we don't know about it. So even the most difficult lives, even the most difficult of circumstances, were not an excuse for her. I wonder to what degree they're an excuse for us. Stories about what is impossible for us to achieve, what one voice can do. And not just one voice, but one voice skillfully applied, calling for the best in someone rather than smacking them down about the worst of themselves. All I know is when I see politicians getting whacked on Twitter, it's not over anything positive. It's never a sense of belief. It's usually a condemnation. And what I'm suggesting is no matter where we stand on that, maybe that's part of the problem. Do we expect maybe too little of our politicians? Maybe, or too much, but do we ever call upon them from a position of conscience and a position of shared humanity. It seems to me in the history of humanity 
the times that has happened with historical figures, big decision makers, it comes from people pushing them towards their best rather than pillaring them for their worst. And I am just as guilty of doing that as anybody else. So this applies just as much to me, I believe, as to anyone else. Julia Sands is an incredible life with an incredible effect that all happened within a very short period of time. And to me, that's a reason for hope and a reason for each of us to take a good look at what we think our potential is to become a better version of ourselves and to push those decision makers on our behalf to find that in themselves. So that covers not only the story, but also covers where I'm at <laughs> for today, which is good because we're coming to the end of this episode of this show is all about you. I hope you enjoyed that story. Uh, it is an amazing one. And now when you start going and looking for Julia Sands, you're going to find her all over the place because her story is known now. And I encourage you to take a look more at her on your own. Thank you for joining me for this episode. And certainly remember again, come see me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, or find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can contact me for there for any reason that you would like. I would love to hear from you. Remember, you can pick up episode this episode as well as any episode of this show wherever you get your podcasts. This show is all about you. is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Today, Nathan Miller is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce and Cindy Bullard, Isabel Gallegos, John Meacham, Seth Mormon, Jennifer Harris, Kathy Lewis, Phil McCoy, Ashley Niebel, Stacey Heller, Casey Beck, and Eric Crema. And to you, listeners in particular, I need to thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And to send you off into the rest of your week, as always, let's end this episode with an original haiku. To hold out the truth, whether history knows it, can change our futures. Chins up, everyone.